0: Let me pray for us one more time, and we'll get into the word. Father, we thank you for the very truth that, God, you are with us, and God, that you are for us, not against us, and God, that you are here with us right now, and um, we thank you so much for your presence. I thank you so much for this church. Thank you, God, for the work that you're doing here for your kingdom, and I pray, God, that um, you would allow our hearts to be open to receive, God, the work that you have before us. And I pray, God, that as we face the different battles that we have in our lives, um, our prayer, God, is that you would give us this confidence that doesn't come from our own mind or through our own strength but you would give us a confidence that comes from your presence. Um, Spirit, strengthen us. Um, We also pray for our members, Diego and Michelle, as they celebrate a big day today. Uh, Would you be at the center of their marriage? Uh, We thank you once again for this church. Be with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, this passage uh, that we're going to be talking about today means a lot to me. Um, I've been actually able to meditate on this passage for almost a month now, and I think Just for me personally, this has helped me to kind of go through tough times and to um, face, you know, the challenges that I face as an individual. And um, just as a disclaimer, I want to say this. Although I've been tasked to preach today, right, this word before you, uh, I am also preaching this to myself and throughout, I say this because throughout the time of ministry that I've been doing, right, not too long, I've been realizing that as a pastor, it's hard to practice what you preach. You know, um, there's, it's really easy to come up on the pulpit and be like, this is God's will for you, right? Do this, right? Um, be holy, right? And say all these different uh, imperatives. But the next day, oh, so easy it is for me to just lose sight of God, to lose sight of his word, and to forget um, the word that he has for me as well. So um, I say this because, you know, even as pastors, we are sinners. Uh, We are also in need of the grace of God. And, you know, I humbly ask that you would show us grace. Um, We are not perfect. And, you know, even for myself, I just make a lot of mistakes, right? And in prepping for the sermon, I've been just praying for our church. I've been praying that this passage would serve to encourage us so that as we go back into our lives, um, we can um, have faith and hope to step into our battles. Uh, So with that being said, if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to the book of Exodus. Um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 17. We also have it here as well. This is the reading of God's word. What I'm going to do is read it through, and I'll just unpack what we have before us today. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, and I'll read on. This is God's word. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek with Moses Aaron and her went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recited in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is our passage today, and as we see, um, Moses, he's directing our attention to two things. Okay, the first thing that he wants us to focus on is the hill. There's this battle going on between Israel and the people of Amalek. And it's interesting because we don't see details of the battlefield, but there's a lot of detail given about the hill. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Moses wants to bring our eyes to is the significance of memorials and altars. So today, I'm just going to be talking about those th- two things, um, to focus on the hill and to focus on uh, the, the significance of memorials and altars. So the first thing, to focus on the hill. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but for, this is Israel's first time in battle. Um, prior to this, as a nation, they've never been in battle. They've never been in war, right? So if this is, like, imagine your first time doing something, right? If this is your first time going into battle, chances are... You're not going to be as experienced, right? Chances are you're not going to be like the Spartans in 300 with like ripped six packs, right? Defeating all your enemies with ease, right? It's not like Moses was Leonidas, okay? Um, The Israelites at this time, they had no training. They had no experience in war, right? They just came out of 400 years of slavery and they were extremely vulnerable, So any army or any nation that wanted to match up against Israel would easily destroy them, right? Um, They're toast, right? They're barbecue chicken. Easy game. Now, if we look throughout the Bible, there's a common theme that we see here. And the theme is this. The enemies of God are stronger than the people of God, right? Uh, If we look in Genesis, um, the Garden of Eden, right? The enemies of God, the serpent, right? Satan seem to be stronger than the people of God, right? Adam and Eve. Um, They engage in this battle, and we see, unfortunately, right, for mankind, um, they lost rather easily to this battle. We move to Exodus, right? We see the enemies of God, right? Egypt and Pharaoh, people who have enslaved God's people, to be stronger and more dominant than the people of God, Israel. And you fast forward to the New Testament, we see that Jesus' very own disciples also seem to be weaker than the Pharisees, right? Uh, In addition, if we read through the Gospels, there's a story where Jesus comes down from the mountain after the transfiguration, and he sees his disciples trying to cast out demons, but they can't, right? So it seems like even like the demonic forces are stronger than the people of God. And here we are in this passage in Exodus 17, where Amalek seems to be stronger than Israel, the people of God. Now we step outside the scriptures and we look at the church today, and it kind of seems like the same thing, right? It kind of seems like our enemies are stronger than us. For example, it seems like the government is prevailing and winning over the churches in China, Right? There's mass persecution going on. A lot of leaders are being jailed for their faith. And it seems like the churches in China are powerless. It seems like even Satan and his demonic forces are prevailing over the churches here. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's been a report that recently came out from the Houston Chronicle, and this is extremely sad. This is sad news, uncovering 20 years of sexual abuse from the Southern Baptist churches. 20 years, and... Throughout the past 20 years, there's over 700 victims of sexual abuse. And a lot of these pastors that committed uh, these heinous acts, right, these sins um, weren't given the right consequences, the right punishment. The worst part about this scandal is that these abusers, after they would commit that sexual abuse, they would leave and go to a different church with no consequences, right? Because each church in the Southern Baptist Convention is autonomous. Scandals aren't only prevalent in the Catholic Church, right? We see scandal, we see sin rampant upon all of our churches. It doesn't matter which which denomination you belong to, right? It doesn't matter if you're mainline, Protestant, evangelical. Sin is rampant in each church, in each individual. And when we even look at our own lives, maybe this isn't the case all the time, but I'm sure there's seasons where we feel like our enemies are stronger than us. It feels like in our own personal lives, whether for students or for working, we're kind of losing this battle. It feels like we're losing the battle in our marriages, right? Marriage is tough. It feels like we're losing the battle of raising our children. Sometimes it feels like we're losing our jobs, we're losing our business. We're losing to our addictions, we're losing to sin. And maybe there's some of us here that You know, we just feel like we're just losing our minds. We're losing our own sanity. So the question is then, how can God's people prevail, right? It feels like the enemies of God are stronger than the people of God. So how can we win? And the answer, I think, that the text is telling us is to look to the hill. So why is the hill so important? The text is showing us that the battle isn't decided on the field, right, where the actual fighting is taking place. The passage is actually not interested in giving us details about the battlefield, right? In our passage, we don't see the number of soldiers, right? We don't see the type of weapons they're using. We don't see how they're fighting. We don't see what type of strategy they're using to win the battle. All we see from the hill is whether if Israel is losing or winning the battle. So the hill is significant because that is where the battle is decided and eventually won, right? The battle is is one on the hill, not on the battlefield. So in our passage, whenever Moses, uh, he lifted his hands, right? When his hands were up in the air, Israel would be winning the fight. But as he would grow tired, right, and his hands would go down, Israel would start losing the battle, right? Which is why he has to sit on that stone, right? And he would have to have Aaron and her help lift each of his hands up so that they can win. So what is Moses doing here, right? This is like a weird passage. Uh, What do the lifting of hands mean? Why is it allowing Israel to win? Some people would argue that it refers to praying, right? Raising holy hands in prayer. And if that's the case, the interpretation then is this. Prayer is the key to win your battles, right? Prayer will defeat your enemies. So guess what? We have to pray. Now, Obviously, that statement is not heretical, right? It's not unbiblical. But through my study of the text, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. Here's the reason why I disagree with that interpretation. It wasn't just about the hands, but there's an emphasis on the staff of God, right? In verse 9, Moses says, I'm going to go up the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So what he's doing, he's not only just lifting his hands while his people are fighting on the field, He's lifting the staff of God. So the key to understanding this passage is to know the function of the staff of God. So what's so significant about the staff? Why is the staff so important here? The staff is a symbol for God's presence. The staff is a sign where God is telling to his people, I am with you. And when you look back, when God commissions Moses, Moses asked God, right, he's insecure, he's afraid, he doesn't want to be used to bring Israel out of slavery, he asks this, right, how will people know that I'm your servant? How will they know that you sent me? How will they even listen to me? And this is how God responds. God says to Moses, Moses, take your staff with you. Why? Because it will be a sign of my presence It's going to be a symbol of my power. And through this staff, you will do the signs. And guess what happened? After, right, you fast forward a little, Moses does all the plagues to Egypt through the staff. And once he frees Israel out of Egypt from slavery, he parts the Red Sea with what? His staff. The staff is so significant because it shows that it's it's not Moses' power. Right? But it's God's power that saves God's people. So how did God's people prevail in this, in this story right here? How did Israel win the battle? They won by lifting up the presence of God. I think God is teaching an important lesson to Israel. I think God is pretty much saying, look, you're fighting a losing battle. You're not ready. You're not equipped. Your enemies are stronger than you, but I'm going to make one thing clear. And God says... I'm going to show you who I am and what I can do, right? This is the power of my presence. So we focus on this hill because we see the importance of God's presence in our lives. That's why the hill is important. And a lot of scholars at this point, right, when you read commentaries, they're going to be like, well, don't jump to Jesus. I know you want to jump to Jesus. I know you want to make that connection from the hill, right, uh, where Amalek is defeated and the hill at Calvary where Jesus died. But you're jumping too many steps. That's a cheap connection. Although I agree that this passage isn't explicitly about Jesus, I do believe, however, that this passage points to Jesus. Here's what I mean. Now, what's the story of Jesus, right? What's the story of um, Calvary, right? What's the whole point of the cross? We see that Jesus, the embodiment of God's presence, right? Emmanuel, God with us, won the cosmic battle on the hill, when we had no chance ourselves, right? That's the story of the cross. Jesus won the battle against sin and death. And the battle of all the other battles that we face in this lifetime is won on Calvary, right? It's won when Jesus died on the cross. Just how God's presence was the deciding factor in the battle against Amalek, we see here in our lives that God himself, in the form of flesh, won the greatest victory that all of mankind needed, the victory and the battle belongs to the Lord. One of my favorite pastors, he said this. um, He says that um, our daily battles must be fought and understood in light of the cosmic battle that Jesus won, right? I'm gonna say that again. Our daily battles must be fought and understood in light of the cosmic battle that Jesus won. And when we look to the cross, we see that our victory is already but not yet. And in the state of not yet, we can still have peace and hope. The cross shows us that although we have the final victory in Jesus, here we are still fighting. And church, we must still fight our battles. And to be honest with you, um, you know, this is how the text is shaping and challenging me as an individual. I don't, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but there are many moments in my own life where I feel like, there's no victory. There are many moments in my life where it feels like I'm living a losing battle. What I mean by that is I I feel like I keep repeating the same sin over and over again, right? Can you relate with that, right? I I keep making the same mistakes. I, I struggle with all these different things. I struggle with loneliness. I struggle with not knowing my financial future, right? And getting older is becoming more of a reality. And I'll be honest with you, church. Like, there are many moments in my life where I'm just scared. I'm like, dude, how's God going to come through? And rather than lifting the presence of God for my help, as Moses is doing in this passage, there are many moments in my life or in my challenges, my struggles, where I lift up the idol of my self-image, where I lift up the idol of approval. I lift up the idol of emotional intimacy, And there are many times, especially more so this past year, where I felt like I was losing every single battle. However, this text is teaching me such an important lesson. We're not going to win the battle through our own might. We're not going to win the battle through our own strength, our own morality, our own giftings. But what God is calling us to do is to continue to fight and to understand our battles in light of the cosmic battle that Jesus has already won. And that totally changes our perspective on life, right? God is calling us to focus on the hill as we still fight. That's the first thing, right? Focus on the hill. The second thing that Moses turns our attention to is the focus on memorials and altars. We see the mentioning of memorials and altars all throughout Scripture. Uh, in Genesis, after the flood subsides, Noah builds an altar after the flood, right? To commemorate what God has done. Abraham, later on in Genesis 12, he built an altar after God made his promises to him. And here we are in Exodus. We see Moses not only creating an altar to commemorate what God has done, but also he's being commanded to write down a memorial to show what happened, what God has done. So what is the purpose of memorials and altars? Uh, It's to remember God's faithfulness, right? It's to remember there were certain moments in our past where God has come through for us, where God has delivered us, where God has saved and protected us. All of us in this room, we share in having two big memorials, right? We have the ultimate memorial in the cross, right? The greatest love ever shown to man, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. We share in that as a reminder of how much God loves us. We also share in the empty tomb, knowing that Jesus himself has defeated death, and therefore, we have this future reality waiting for us in heaven, right? Those are the two big memorials that all of us as Christians, we share in. But I also think that we have practical memorials. Sometimes, they're gifts, right? Sometimes, they're children. And through our children, we see, dude, God is amazing. God has provided for us. Sometimes we have practical memorials in God providing work and income or God providing through a time in crisis, right? God providing uh, through the years and years you, you spend praying for that one thing. But sometimes memorials are scars. Sometimes they're painful events that happened in the past where you look back on and you see, I didn't see it at that moment, but God was there. God was with me, and he used that challenging moment in my life to make me into a more faithful disciple today. Right? Sometimes it's like Jacob, who lived with a limp for the rest of his life. And sometimes it's just the fact that you are here today. right? You being here today, you being alive, you breathing is a memorial and an altar stating that God has sustained you. God has given you life, which is a gift in itself. And church, I want to ask you all, what are the markers that we have set up to remind us of God's presence? What are the specific altars and the memorials that God has given to us? I have many memorials. Um, there are so many different events I could look back on where I see God at work. But one memorial that is extremely significant to me is A scar. Um, So, I'm sure many of you know, I grew up in a middle-class family in Cerritos, Uh, I was born into the church, Um, I was, my family, right, my parents were Asian immigrant uh, individuals who came from Korea to America, and, um, you know, for my dad, like, you guys know, like, I love my dad, right? Uh, My dad was really, really good at providing physical care, right? whenever I got into an accident, right? Whenever a crisis would happen, whenever I would need money, uh, whenever like I would have to renew my AAA card, right? My dad was there, right? And he would always check up on me. I was like, hey, your insurance card came in. Like, did you put it in your car? And I'm like, yes, right? Stop bothering me. My dad would always provide meals, right? My dad would always care for me. My dad would help provide um, paying for bills. And he was so good at that, right? He was on top of it. But as, and this is kind of like the immigrant struggle. As a child of an um, Asian immigrant, um, it was hard to receive emotional nurturing and spiritual guidance from my dad. And a lot of that actually came from my mom. I think my mom was, in my life, the only source of emotional nurturing. Uh, When I was a freshman in high school, she passed away from cancer And so from the moment I was 14, um, I had no one to emotionally nurture me, right? For the past 15 years of my life, um, I've longed, I've craved that emotional nurturing. And for over 15 years, right, I've longed for it. And um, this is what I learned through God's providence during my time in therapy. Since no one was able to emotionally nurture me, to care for me, uh, since I'm so emotionally deprived, right, because I have mommy issues, this was my defense mechanism, if no one's going to emotionally pour out to me, then I'm just going to emotionally pour out to everyone. Right? I'm going to care for everyone. I'm going to meet with everyone, listen to their stories, hear them out, be there for them. Because I didn't want people to feel like me. I realized that God was using that particular brokenness in my life, right? being emotionally deprived, without a mother figure, to sharpen a lot of the giftings and shepherding and caring for others that a lot of people affirm today. Now, I don't understand why God took my mother at such a young age. I don't have the answer to that. However, I can see that God was there in that moment. Even in my emotional brokenness, um, I can see that God was there too. And because of my scars, because of all these painful events all these different things I didn't want to go through, I have come to know God more clearly and deeper as a result. And isn't this the power of the gospel, church? God can use any brokenness, and he could change it into beauty. God can use any evil for good. God can turn any type of mourning into dancing. And as a church... Once we look back at past acts of redemption and deliverance, we have the strength to face and fight our battles today. Here's our application. Look backwards and look forward. Look backwards and look forward. Here's what I mean. Um, The first part, look backwards, right? Look back at your memorials and altars. Look back in the many moments where God has came through for you. Look back at the moments where God has given you victory. Where you look back in the moment and you're like, that was all God, not me. And namely, remember how God has provided for you and not the ways that you wanted, but remember how God has provided for you in the ways that you needed. Look back. Remember the memorials and the altars that God has set up for you. And the second thing, look forward and hope. I am saying look forward to home. This is not home, but home is in a future reality when we see God face-to-face. And in Revelation 21, um, we are promised this reality where God himself will wipe away all of our tears and there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, but we will be satisfied being in the presence of God. And as we fight our battles today, um, We are called to look back and to remember God's faithfulness in the past and at the same time look and hope to our future reality in heaven. That gives us the faith to fight our battles in the present and we become more secure. In closing, I just want to say this. Um, Moses gave a name to the altar, right? This altar that he created after the battle was won. He called it the Lord is my banner, right? Yahweh is my banner. Now, what does this mean, okay? Uh, a banner a, is pretty much a military flag that armies would take into battle, right? So if you watch like Braveheart or like Lord of the Rings, right, those epic movies with like those battles with like horses and like swords, um, you see people on the horse, right, with a flag. That flag is a banner, right? Um, that flag represents which team you're on, which who you're fighting for. And so the phrase, the Lord is my banner, right? Or the Lord is my flag gives the credit to Yahweh, God himself for winning the battle, right? It doesn't give credit to Moses. It doesn't give credit to Aaron or her. It doesn't even give credit to the staff that Moses was holding. The Lord is my banner pretty much communicates that Yahweh, God himself has fought for us. God has fought for you. And Yahweh has delivered his people once again, time after time after time. And deliverance doesn't always necessarily mean that God removes your circumstances, right? It's not like God fixes your circumstances. He takes it away from your life. Sometimes what I've been learning is that deliverance comes in the form of peace and contentment even in the midst of the most horrible circumstances we can face in life, right? Even if the trial is current and ongoing. Sometimes God's act of deliverance in our lives is a change in perspective, not a change in circumstance. And the reason why the Christian life is so amazing, like I love being a Christian, is not because all your problems are solved and you live a pain-free life once you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The reason why, however, the Christian life is so amazing is because we can have composure, we can have peace, we can have security, we can have joy and satisfaction, even as we head towards and endure the most painful battle or circumstance in our lives. Let's look at the example of Apostle Paul, right? He learned the secret to being content. He learned the secret to being stable and secure, even in the midst of suffering. And that's why Christianity is so great. That's how God's presence changes our lives and the way that we live. God's presence in our lives gives us the confidence to go into battle no matter what the outcome is. Because the outcome of that current battle that you're, we're facing right now is completely insignificant compared to what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. So, the beauty of this entire story, right? Everything we're, that we're talking about, right, in Exodus 17, the beauty of the story is that God's presence is greater than your weakness, God's presence is greater than our sins. And for me personally, I have so much peace. My circumstances haven't changed. My battles are still difficult. There are times where I want to give up. But because of God's presence, I have greater peace. I feel more secure. And I have a greater understanding of who God is. God's presence is all that we need. God's presence is much more valuable than a circumstance change. God's presence allows us to be content. It allows us to be poised and secure even in suffering and pain. The book of Exodus, to be frank with you, isn't interested in solving your issues or your problems in life, right? It's not interested in showing you which job to pursue, which company to apply for, which relationships to pursue. The goal of Exodus isn't even to give you practical ways to fix your messy circumstances, right? Exodus isn't interested in that because the book of Exodus is not about us. Exodus, however, is all about divine self-disclosure. Exodus is all about God revealing himself to his people. The goal of Exodus is to continue on from what was written in Genesis in order to reveal to us, all of us today, who is Yahweh, who is God Almighty. And once we start to better understand who God is, once we better understand his character and his heart, then we have a greater understanding and awareness of God's presence in our lives. To know God is to experience his presence. Church, the battle is difficult. Life is hard. And I say to you all, do not lose hope because the battle is already won on the hill at Calvary. We have strength, but not a perfect life. We have victory already, but not yet since it will be finalized once we see Jesus face to face. Let's pray together. Um, I actually just want to lead us into one prayer topic. And if you feel like life is hard and you're just engaged in some difficult battles, um, I want to give you the time and space to remember your the altars, to remember God's faithfulness in the past. And if it's really hard to come up with that, let's really ask God, open my eyes to see how you were so faithful in my life. Open my eyes to see how you delivered Maybe this is not all of our stories. Maybe there's a lot of us here who are in amazing seasons, right? Um, Like God has really provided and we feel so positive and upbeat and praise God for that. Um, If you are in a really, really good season, I want to encourage you to pray for the people around you. Pray for those who are struggling. Pray for victory and not in circumstances, but the victory would be realized in what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray for that church.